So we're going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians this evening. Colossians chapter 3. Under the, and we're going to read God's Word this evening under the heading of putting on holiness. Putting on holiness. And we're going to read Colossians 3, 1-17. to But our Scripture lesson will be primarily focused on verses 12-16. through Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God reads this evening, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all Christ is all and in all. In our Scripture lesson this evening. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass will wither, the flowers shall fade, but this word of God shall stand forever. My most dear friends, the Christian is no ordinary person. While the majority of our world ominously looks towards their death, seeking to live each moment to the fullest, the Christian is somebody who the Apostle Paul says, as we just read in verse 3, has already lived, has already died, and verse 1, has already been raised to new life in Christ. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration. In John chapter 3, we have this beautiful story where it's nighttime and Jesus 
meets Nicodemus and he explains to him the doctrine of regeneration and he calls it the new birth. You see, one must be born again. We need to be made new in the Holy Spirit. And once you are born again, you have a new life. You have a new nature. You have a new heart. You have a new everything. The Holy Spirit is to affect in us a new fundamental change in every believer. If you are a believer today, you have a privileged and a special status before the Lord. The question often is, and it was for the Colossian church as well, is are we living according to that reality? Are we living as people who have lived, died, and raised with Christ? Or are we living as people whose life and practices determined by this world? See, the Apostle Paul says our behavior ought to reflect this new man. This raised man, not the old man, as we looked at a few months ago in verses 5-11. through You see, in verses 5-11, through the Apostle Paul says what we are not to do. We should not sin. That's the negative command. But this evening we turn to the positive command. This is what we should do. We are to be holy and to pursue holiness. So in the Christian, the old habits must die and new habits must be birthed in us to take their place. And I want to show you this in three points this evening. We see that holiness is grounded in faith in Christ in verses 12 through 14. We need to abide in the peace of Christ in verse 15 and to dwell upon the message of Christ in verses 16 through 17. So that's holiness is grounded in faith in Christ, abide in the peace of Christ, and to dwell upon the message of Christ. And what we want to see in this, our lesson for our time together this evening, is that a Christian is to be set apart. That's what holiness means. Set apart for the Lord's purposes and the Lord's plans. So let's look at our first point this evening. Verses 12-14 through Holiness is to be grounded in faith in Christ. Here, the Apostle Paul in verses 12 through 14 is exhorting us to a practical holiness. You know, it was 1877 when J.C. Ryle, who was the bishop of one of the churches of England, upon examining the status of holiness in the church of England, he said this. He said the subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. He says, I have had a deep conviction for many years, listen to this, that practical holiness and entire consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians. Close quote. That was in 1877. What would Bishop Ryle say about the church in 2022? 
Now don't get me wrong, beloved. Good doctrine is important to the church. But we cannot base our view on whether or not we have achieved sanctification on whether we know where sanctification is located in the Heidelberg Catechism. And for those of you studying the Catechism, it's Lord's Day 24. To be sanctified is not whether you are a Calvinist or not. To be holy is not whether you have the right interpretation of the millennium in Revelation 20 or apologetics. Let me be absolutely clear this morning. Good doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by holiness. Good doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by holiness. If we have good doctrine but no holiness, all we have is a dead religion. And the Bible is full of practical exhortations to be holy. Remember Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew 6, Paul's epistles, half of the book of Galatians is about how to live a life of gratitude in response to the doctrine of justification, in response to these other great doctrines. Holiness is not supposed to be an abstract theological doctrine that the doctors and professors and pastors meditate on, but it is to be the daily work of each and every one of us. So, killing sins, mortification in verses 5-11, through is the turning from sin, but holiness is the embracing of Christ. So we need to grow up in holiness. Each and every one of us. So how do we do it? Look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says, holiness is Christ's work. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Just as a flower cannot grow until it's planted and watered, so we cannot grow in holiness until we are planted in Christ by the Father and watered by the Spirit. Faith in Christ is the root of all holiness. The first step in in holiness is believing upon Christ. And Paul grounds this whole argument about killing sins and pursuing holiness. The whole argument is grounded in the objective work of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 12. He calls us The Colossian Christians, including us today, he calls us the chosen ones. This is where our Dutch Reformed Amen comes in, right? Yes, we're chosen in Christ. But Paul says we should be holy because in eternity past, God set His electing love on you. Consider that statement. God who knows all things. God who knows every one of our thoughts and desires. God know, God, the God who knows your every triumph and your every sin chose you for salvation. Before you were born, God loved you. And God called you, dear Christian. 
And predestination is not only to not only to cause us to sit and marvel, it should affect our lives, says the Apostle Paul. Paul says, if God so loved me, if God so loved you in election, then surely I can love my mother-in-law. And I have a great mother-in-law, just to be clear. Metaphorically. If God set His electing love upon me, I can love my often unlovable spouse. And of course, I have a great spouse as well, just to be clear. But theoretically, we can love our our mother-in-laws, we can love our spouses, we can love our children, we can love our co-workers because we have been first loved by God. Life is better as a friend of Almighty God. Religion is more profound. Art is more beautiful. Work is more satisfying. Not because we see with new eyes. Not because we hear with new ears. But because we live with a new heart. A heart that knows that it is loved by God. And God doesn't just elect His people for salvation, but He elects His people unto service. One of the great passages that so eloquently proves the doctrine of election says this in verse Ephesians 2 verse 10 says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works God elects us so that we can serve him on earth whether he calls you to be a student whether he calls you to be a wife a tradesman, an accountant, a grandparent, may it all be to the glory and in light of the love of God. Paul says you should be holy because God has set His electing love upon you. And then look at this, he says you should be holy because you are holy. You should be holy because you have been set apart to be holy, says the Apostle. Little children who are here this evening, you you definitely, well I shouldn't say definitely, but many of you probably don't remember when you came to this baptismal font or another baptismal font earlier in your life. But when the water was poured on you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, God has set His claim upon you. The Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7 that you are set apart in Christ. Young children are holy in the Lord, set apart. What that means then is that even though if you haven't professed faith yet at the front of the church, and there isn't maybe yet the evidence of an internal holiness, Christ calling you holy at the baptismal font is saying, you don't belong to anyone else. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to sin. You belong to God. He has set you apart for a sacred purpose. And you must respond to His promises. This is your purpose in life. To respond and receive salvation. And look at what he says. The Apostle Paul goes on. We're um, predestined, we're holy, but we're also dearly loved. You are not only called... You are not only set apart, but you are loved by God in Christ. 
From eternity past, God has set His love upon the church. And if you be in Christ, then know that He has loved you with an everlasting love this evening. A love so deep, a love so unfathomable, that He would even crucify His Son for you. Paul says, for these reasons, we are to set ourselves apart to strive each day for holiness. It's the work of Christ in you. Look at what Paul says. Continuing on, he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. Notice that word, put on. When you woke up this morning and you chose what clothes to wear, did you leave them on the bed and walk out of the room and come to church with nothing on? I sure hope not. Where did those clothes go with you throughout the day? The answer is, Well, wherever I went, the clothes went. They're just on me. Paul is using that put-on language as a metaphor. In the same way what we wear goes with us wherever we go, he's saying, so Christ must go with you wherever you go. We are to always be clothed in Christ-like character. We are to see that true holiness is not only believing, it's not a feeling, but it's also a bearing and it's a doing. This means that our tongues and our tempers, our passing inclinations, our conduct as parents, as he says in verse 21, as children in verse 20, as employees and employers, 22 through 25, as husbands and wives, how we spend our time, our business, our demeanor, whether in sickness or in health, in riches or in poverty, everything is to be done in a Christ like manner in reference to who Christ is and what He has done. You see, a holy man will abide in Christ with his family while he's at work, his times of leisure, and times of sorrow. The image of Christ, says the Apostle Paul in the passage we looked at last week in the evening, is to be seen and observed by others in us. Finally, I just want to say one more thing in this first point. Holiness is being Christ-like. Again, it was J.C. Ryle who said, a holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Close quote. So when the Apostle Paul in those first few verses is going out, talking about compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience, who is he describing? He's describing the only person who's ever modeled these attributes perfectly. The Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian is called to be compassionate because Christ has had compassion upon us. A Christian is called to be kind, to be humble in our actions, to be gentle and patient because Christ has been humble. He has been a gentle shepherd. He has been patient with us in our sins. He has been all of these things towards us. So then likewise, we are called to be all those things towards each other. As Paul says in verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. William Hendrickson says, love is the lubricant that enables the other virtues to run smoothly. 
It was love that sent Jesus to earth to redeem the church. The Apostle John will later say, God is love. God has given us the spirit of love. The whole focus of our lives is to be the love of God and love of nature, not love of neighbor. It's love that allows these things to flourish and for us to be like our Savior. So, beloved, is holiness innate within us? The answer is no. But it's rooted and grounded in the work of Jesus Christ in us. So it is not us that works holiness, but the grace of Christ which is in us. So let's think about a few words of application this evening. I want us to notice here this evening that holiness is intensely practical. You know, back when I was in my time in the RCA, some of the most holy people I knew could not define for you what sanctification was. It's, that's not what makes someone holy. Whether you're smart, whether you can memorize Lord's Day 24, what makes someone holy is how they live. We are called to shun every sin and keep all of God's commandments before our eyes. Here's a really simple way to think about it. Holiness it will be practiced by Christians when we think the thoughts of God. When we are of one mind with God. When we are in step with what God is teaching us. We need to steep ourselves in Him. To hate what God hates. To love what God loves. When we agree with God, we shall be holy. When we agree with God, we shall be holy. And so I want to encourage you this evening towards a practical holiness. To pursue all of these virtues. To be compassionate and kind and humility and meekness and patience as Christ has been all of those things first to us. The Apostle says, moving on, that we need to abide in the peace of Christ in verse 15. You see, the second way that we progress in holiness in this life is by abiding in, or in other words, living in the peace of Jesus Christ. You see, early in the Bible, it says when man fell into sin, our forefather and our foremother, Adam and Eve, it is said that God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword at the east entrance of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because even though God had made Adam and Eve in His perfect image and had revealed to them His perfect moral law in His character, they disobeyed Him and now they were at war with God. And we are taught from the beginning that sin is disobedience. And God doesn't like disobedience. God does not bless disobedience. And so let us be clear this evening. Jesus Christ hates sin. And due to the fall and our own sinfulness, we are sinners. 
Whether you're big or you're small or you're colored or you're white or you're young or you're old, you're rich, you're poor, man or woman, all of us are at enmity with God because of sin. Yet the Apostle says you are to live at peace with God. You say, how can I, a sinner, be at peace with God? So when Paul writes, Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. He speaks of the peace that can only come through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we know this Gospel of peace? The Gospel of peace is a resting and it's a contentment in our hearts to know that our Savior lives. It is the conviction to know that our sins have been forgiven and that whatever takes place today is from God. And that whatever comes in the future, I shall never be separated from the love of God and Christ Jesus. That's true peace. Our Savior lives. Our Savior reigns. And He does all things for my good Beloved, do we know this peace this morning? This is to be rooted into our hearts. This is not to be a theoretical doctrine that we store on our bookshelves, but it's to be our daily rule. It's to rule your hearts, says the Apostle Paul. Of course, this doesn't mean the physical organ, but it's referring to the Hebrew euphemism as the heart being the seat of all our emotions. It's from our hearts, says the Bible, that we act. And it's from the heart that we speak and do live. The emphasis here is that Paul says we should do all things in the knowledge of the Gospel. And that our actions each day should be filtered through the stained glass of the love of God and the peace that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This should affect how we live in this life. That peace is born in our hearts by the Gospel. But it also has a social aspect. It should affect, I hope you're getting this point, the way that we live in this life and how we treat one another. Paul says, to which you also were called in one body. And be thankful. Again, he's hammering that point of election. He reminds us that in eternity past, God elected the church as one whole body. Last Sunday when we talked about this, I said, look to your left and look to your right. Everyone in here who's a Christian, God has set His love upon him. Or her. If they are in Christ, they are loved by God. As a corporate whole, you wonder why Christ prays in, Genesis, or in John 17 for unity in the church. That they may be one. If we are to have unity and thankfulness, we need to have unity in the Gospel and the pursuit of holiness. But Paul says as well, not only is unity a fruit of this, but we also ought to be thankful. Be thankful for the Gospel. It is said of the greatest man who ever lived that he tied a cloth around his waist. And in John 13, he washed his disciples' feet. 
Beloved, we have not been physically washed by Christ, but if you're a Christian, Christ has spiritually washed your sins. Not with water, but with His precious blood. He is what we will call the lily of the valley. He is the Prince of Heaven, the King of creation, the pearl of great price. Sell everything that you have. Forsake father or mother and brother that you might have Him. Yet this gift of Jesus Christ is free. He prayed for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And now we ought to live as people who cherish what He has done for us. So I want to ask you this question this morning. When is the last time we simply thanked the Lord for His blessings? To simply say, thank You, Lord, for the salvation You've given me. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your church. And parents, ought we not to teach our children, when I was a little kid, we sang this song, count your blessings, name them one by one. So simple, yet it's something that sticks with you as you age. To be thankful for the many blessings that God has given us spiritually and physically. Parents, instill this in your children. And so we see that the peace of Christ needs to daily inform our lives. The peace that comes to us through the cross. And finally this morning in verses 16-17, through this evening, we need to dwell upon the message of Christ. Paul then, when speaking about the subject of holiness, turns then to worship. The worship of God's people. The third way we grow in holiness is that we worship God. Now just a disclaimer this evening. Not just any worship helps us grow in holiness. Paul says that there is a certain type of worship that helps us grow in holiness. And look at what he talks about in verses 16-17. through The type of worship that helps us grow in holiness is worship that is centered upon Christ. Look at what he says. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Meaning that the object of our study as Christian people is the Gospel. The message of Christ And for Christians, we ought to never get tired of this Gospel message. Because as the Gospel message is unfolded in our private worship and in our public worship, we come to know that Christ was clothed in flesh. He was born as a baby. His life, His death, His resurrection. And He did it all because, as we've said, He loved His church. But even more than that, God has set His eternal decree upon you of salvation. So does this mean we should only ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And that all of our preaching needs to be from the Gospel or our devotions? Of course, the answer is no. Jesus said after His resurrection in Luke 24, all of the Scriptures pertain to Him. The Christian should study the whole Word of God. Even Leviticus. Because the whole Word of God is concerned with Christ. What Paul is saying is that in our worship, it's the Gospel that should be on our minds. It's the Gospel that should be on our lips. It's the the Gospel that should be on our heart. And it ought to govern every thought, word, and deed in this place. 
This is how we instruct people in holiness. Not be better, do better, but look to Christ. See His love. See His election. And love Him. Then we grow up in holiness. Look to the perfect Savior. See Him taking little children in His arms. See His selflessness. See His loving the unlovable. See His perfect example. Who wouldn't want to be like our Savior? Who doesn't want to be like Jesus Christ? He says this is what motivates us. This is what gives us the gas for the week ahead. Christ died to save sinners. God the Father loved you with an everlasting love. The Holy Spirit is in your midst applying it to your hearts. What more does the Christian need? And this this truth is not just for the intern. It's not just for the elders and deacons. But the Apostle Paul says it's for everyone. Teaching and admonishing one another. Every member of this church needs the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Young and old, as we saw this morning. We all need to treasure this Gospel in our hearts. We all need to treat this Gospel as the Word of life. And when that is done, the Gospel will bear fruits of holiness. It's for everyone. Man, woman, and child. And we need to be teaching and admonishing one another in the truths of this Gospel. Notice one thing the Apostle Paul says here is singing is to be part of our worship. Another way that God's Word dwells richly in our hearts is by song. The Apostle Paul says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now this passage has caused a lot of, you may not know this, caused a lot of controversy in the churches for a long time because there have been many who have argued that we can only sing the psalms of the Old Testament. Whereas there have been some people in the church, uh, including this church, who have argued that no, this passage includes hymns. So what does the Apostle Paul mean here? Now, I can't get into all the details since, uh, as I said last week, PhDs have been written on this subject. But Paul is breaking down what he uh, is saying should be sung in the churches with these three categories, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, the people who say that you should only sing psalms say that this is actually referring, these are synonyms. In the Old, there was a uh, Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. It actually broke every one of the Psalms of the Old Testament into these three categories Psalms or hymns or spiritual songs. And so, when the Apostle Paul says Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, they say he's just referring to the Septuagint's breaking it down into those three categories. Okay, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What does it mean? Well, I don't think it's a synonym but there is some overlap. The Psalms clearly point us back to the Old Testament Psalter, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Psalms, just like hymns, are to have a prominent place in our 2022 worship services. The URCNA church order, it even says, 
that we should have the psalm should have a principal place in our worship. It means they're not to be forgotten or trampled upon, but are to be included. The Apostle Paul doesn't stop with psalms, but he also says hymns. Now this is becoming more contested, right? What is a hymn? Is it just uh, referring to the psalms or is it referring to something else? Well, the St. Augustine defined, them, or defined a, a hymn in three ways. He says hymns need to be sung, they need to strike the note of praise, and they need to be directed towards God. Now, that means many of the psalms are hymns, but many of hymns, many of our hymns are not psalms. Whatever your, your interpretation of this is, we see that there are hymns that are sung throughout the Scripture that are not psalms, like Mary's song in Luke 1 and the song of Zechariah in Luke 1 as well. But all in all, a hymn needs to be scriptural, of course. Now, the one that has caused the most debate in this trinity of psalms that are to be sung, or songs that are to be sung, is not psalms, not hymns, but spiritual songs. When Paul uses the word spiritual, he is not referring to charismatic, but if you look at where this same word is used elsewhere in Ephesians 5, verse 19, Revelation 5, 9, 14, 3, and 15, 3, we know that it at least is not referring to psalms. It's in fact referring to sacred songs. These are songs that praise God for His work, praise God for His wonders, the gifts of His Word. So the Apostle Paul says again, in a different way, that the gospel is to be full of all, our singing is to be full of the gospel. And so in our public and our private worship, we need to be focusing and making sure that our the content of our preaching and our study is full of Christ. The content of our singing in public and private is to be full of Christ also. He says this is the third and the final means by which we grow in holiness. It's by participating in Christ-centered worship and Christ-centered singing. Let's conclude this evening with these final remarks. Let us be reminded that God has predestined His church to be set apart for Him and Him alone. If you have been baptized this, if you've been baptized, that means you are a baptized forehead. God has set His mark upon you. You do not belong to Satan, to the world. You do not belong to the old man within you. You belong to Christ. And we need to take this knowledge of Christ, the person of Christ with us, we need to put it on and live lives that are marked by holiness or gratitude for all that God has done for us in Him. The Apostle Paul says, whatever we do in word or deed, let us do it all in His name. Do it all for His glory. Do it all for His church. The aim, in a sense, the trajectory of our lives is to do it all for the glory of God who saves sinners. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks this evening for the work of the Gospel in our hearts. We know that we could not pursue holiness, we could not forsake our sinful ways apart from the work of Jesus Christ in us. We pray, Lord, that we might abide in the peace of the Gospel. And that this church might stand as a beacon of light for every Sunday morning and evening to proclaim sermons filled with Christ, to sing songs full of His sacrifice, full of His love. And that, Lord, as we pursue holiness together as as a congregation, as the body of Jesus Christ, that it might not be out of our own strength, but that we might look unto Jesus Christ Find in Him the strength, the power to forsake the old man and to embrace the new. We pray that You might work these things in our hearts by Christ and through the work of His Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in His name. Amen.